Opening with prayer, Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your mercy and your grace. It's new every morning and your faithfulness, Lord. We do pray as we finish limited atonement, you'd help us to understand the greatness of your plan, how your decrees cannot be thwarted and how you're omnipotent and sovereign in salvation. And uh, we do pray, Lord, that you'd help us to think well in the biblical text. It's also that we would live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I was discussing the doctrine of limited atonement. That's where we left off last time. And I want you to remember that I'd made the point that limited atonement means that Christ's death was designed specifically to save the elect. We always say that it is sufficient for all, but his death is efficient for the elect. The other point I made is Jesus Christ died for all people without distinction, meaning Jew and Gentile, but he didn't die for all people without exception. That is, each and every individual. Now, what's interesting is the Arminians will deny this, but Arminians also limit God's atonement. They simply have to do so by claiming that God's decretive will had been thwarted. So think about that. Everyone has to limit the atonement of Christ. If Christ atoned for every person, then every person would be guiltless before God and you'd be left with universalism. So the real question is, what is it that limits the atonement? Is it God being thwarted? That he tried to save some people, but he just couldn't do it. He died for them, but his plan failed. What I'm going to show you again as we continue on is that's not the case. Christ died specifically with the intent and purpose of dying and purchasing the elect. That was the purpose behind it. One of the passages I left off with you last time was Isaiah 59.1. And the reason I'm showing you these texts from both the old and the new is to show you that God doesn't fail. When he goes to do something, whether it's to save or to judge for that matter, he does not fail in his endeavors. Isaiah 59.1, it says, Behold, Yahweh's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. No, his hand is powerful to save. And again, the Arminians would claim that when God sets out to save people, his power is thwarted, his decretive will, by man. Now remember the two different wills I talked about. The decretive wills where God decrees certain things to come about, and therefore they necessarily do. But we distinguish that from God's moral will. God's moral will, for example, is that no one shall steal. But does that mean that no one steals? No. God's moral will is that every single person would honor the Ten Commandments or not murder, etc., etc. Well, people violate those things all the time. Okay? So certainly God's moral will has to be distinguished from his decretive will. His decretive will cannot be thwarted. Now, one of the texts that I had you turn to last time, remember, was Isaiah 55. Turn there once again, and I'll read it just for review. And then we'll build off of that again. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. Please turn your Bibles there. Again, Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11. Listen to what God's word does. It accomplishes exactly what God sent it out to do. It says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven... And do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So will my word by which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. Stop there for a moment. Notice the term desire. That has to do with the will of God. And what I would claim is that's not the moral will. This is the decretive will. That when God sets his word out for a purpose, it accomplishes that purpose. When God set out in the beginning to create the heavens and the earth by his word, he didn't fail. When he calls forth, calls forth Lazarus from the tomb, remember in John 11, did he fail? Did Lazarus say, you know, I don't think so. I, I, I like it here in the tomb. He doesn't fail. When the Lord speaks, his word accomplishes its task. And so that's what he says. It accomplishes what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Now, let me turn your attention to another text, and then I'm going to go to the New Testament, 
And this is in John 6.39, and this is significant. I want to break this text into three parts. Notice here Jesus says, John 6.39, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now, the first clause I want you to turn your attention towards, notice this phrase where he says, this is the will of him who sent me. One of the questions we have to wrestle with is, well, when we're talking about the moral will versus the decretive will, which is it here in John 6, 39? Is it God's moral will? I think it's his decretive will as well. Now, why do we know that? Well, notice the context. Notice in the underline, Jesus talks about all that have been given to him. Now, that's certainly a reference to the elect, those that have been decreed salvation, as we learned from Bob in Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world. So certainly that's his decretive will. So this decretive will cannot be thwarted. Now, further evidence that that is indeed the case Notice he says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, what? I lose nothing. So notice in the red, Jesus is not going to lose any of his elect. Now let's contrast that with the Arminian position. The Arminian position is that God endeavors to save all men, but he is thwarted because some men choose not to believe. Well, if that were the case, then how could Jesus say all that he has has been given, he lost nothing. In the Arminian scheme, God dies for every person, but some he doesn't succeed in saving. Well, Jesus couldn't say, I lose nothing. In fact, notice the last phrase where he says, but raise it up on the last day. Throughout John 6, that's a reference to the raising up unto eternal life, specifically the resurrection that belongs to the saved. Now, we know the unregenerate are going to be raised up too, but that's not Jesus' point in John 6. Those who are raised up are raised up to eternal life. So Jesus loses nothing. He succeeds in saving the elect. His decretive will indeed cannot be thwarted. Okay, so let's ask the question, does Christ fail to save any that God has chosen? No. Then how can the Arminian claim that God provides salvation for all? How can he do it? How can they claim that when, in fact, God's plans cannot fail? All right, now, let me show you some text. Oh, yeah, Eric, we got a comment or question over there. Yeah, I just have one question yeah. and actually a comment, too. Uh, we talk about the decretive will. Is that the same as the providential will? Is God's providential will? Uh, yeah, what he brings about, absolutely. Okay. There's many different terms. Sometimes people distinguish between the secret and revealed will. Okay. Sometimes it's the decretive versus the moral will. Depends kind of on what aspect of Scripture. Right. But in providence, like Bob often says, providence contains both good and evil. Yeah. The thing about providence is it's not revealed. Okay. In other words... It's not revealed if you're going to stub your toe or you get a flat tire on the way to go get a gas station. That's part of God's providence. Okay, um, good. If you win the uh, lottery or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, not that you play the lottery. Uh, the, and then the comment that I had is back in Isaiah 59, uh, 55. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, I just, I've underlined and I just love this 55 verse 8. Okay, good. Where God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, yes. nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. See, God is not answerable to our, our re reasoning. God's yeah. reasoning is not answerable to us. We're not going to understand everything. That's right. And I think that that's, that ties right into all of this. You're exactly right. In fact, um, Eric, that's a great point. I think about in 1 Corinthians, how Paul calls the message of the cross foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, the last plan that they would ever come up with is a Messiah who would come from heaven, become a man, subject himself to the point of death on the cross. 
humankind would never come up with a plan like that. But yet that's the power and wisdom of God as Paul declares it to be. So yeah, absolutely, our ways are not his ways. And his salvation, his plan is indeed perfect. We don't always understand it. We understand what's been revealed, but we don't often, as you mentioned, understand the providential things that God uses to bring about. Absolutely. So with that, let me turn to some texts that the Arminians use to try to prove their point that God indeed had Christ come to die and save all men. Some of the texts that they use, one of them is in 2 Peter 3.9. One of them was in 1 Timothy 2.4, and I did handle that when we discussed that passage as I was doing the sermon. So if you have a question on that one, you can look back at the sermon. But I want to handle 2 Peter 3.9 because in this text, it seems to indicate that indeed God wants to save all men, which would give credence to the Arminian idea that yes, Jesus did die for all, but because some men choose not to believe him, he is thwarted. Okay, so what passages do they use? Well, here's 2 Peter 3, 9, where Peter says, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, remember the context here in 2 Peter 3. It's all about the day of the Lord. And there would be scoffers that would come saying, hey, ever since the beginning of the world, everything has gone on as it always has. Where is his coming? Well, he's reminding them that God isn't slow concerning his promise, but he's not wishing for any to perish. All right, now, this text does seem to indicate at the cursory reading of it that God does at some level want every single human being to be saved. Okay, in fact, let's look at some of the terms here. Let me pull up my pointer again. Notice the phrase where he says, not wishing. The term there, bulamai, has to do with the will of God. So we can't claim, well, this is just a wish, but it has nothing to do with the will of God. No, this is the will of God. And it also says that he's not, his will is not for any, the term tis literally means that, for any to perish. And then you have a strong contrast of conjunction, meaning there's a contrast he doesn't want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So at the cursory reading of it, it's very hard to argue that, yes, indeed, God in his will does not desire all men to come to repentance. But let's take a closer look at this. And here's what I want you to consider. Let's look at this clause where he says, not wishing for any to perish. If it's de God's decretive will that none were to perish and yet some do perish, well, then God is failing to bring about his purpose. Are you with me? Now, we know that that can't be the case. Why? Because of Romans 9.19. And by the way, I think we'll get to that text today once again. But remember in Romans 9.19, the question is, who can resist his will? That's his decretive will. And what's the answer to that? Well, no one can. So if no one can thwart God's decretive will, when it says that he doesn't wish for any to perish, that certainly can't be a reference to his decretive will. So here's to me the three options. The three options to understand this text is number one, God decrees all to be saved, but is thwarted by human free will. That's option one. That's the Arminian position. The second option is that God's moral will is for all to be saved, but that's not his decretive will. Okay, now, um, I'm sorry, Brian, did you have something? Well, I just wanted to say that in my Bible, I had a note when we had gone over this in years past, and it was yeah. 1 Timothy 2, 4 and 5, who kind of says the same thing, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But it seems like there's a difference between God's desire and God's salvation purpose. There's, he has a difference there. Yeah, and that's the distinction that I'm making is between his decretive will and his moral will. But in that text right there in 1 Timothy 2, 4, that he desires all men to be saved. The best reading of that text, as I pointed out in the sermon, was that it's all without distinction, not all without exception. Why? Because in the immediate context, Paul was talking about praying for all in authority. Okay, so all people without distinction, you pray for the king, and you pray for the lowliest of status. But he also goes on to say, for this reason I was made 
an apostle to the Gentiles. So what was so significant in Ephesus is you had these heretics who wanted to go back to the law. And for them, salvation was of the Jews. They wanted to go back to the Jewish law. They wanted salvation to be a Jewish thing. Well, Paul is reminding them that he was made an apostle to the Gentiles. So what was significant in the context of 1 Timothy 2.4 was that salvation wasn't limited just to the Jews, but all men without distinction, meaning Jews and Gentiles. So that's, I think, the best reading of that text. So yeah, very good one. Yeah, Bob. Is there anything to be learned from Jesus' lament over Jerusalem when he says, how often I would have gathered you, but you yes. would not? Now, there's another instance of something like that. Right. Now, we know from all of the New Testament that there was a reason, yes. which was a partial hardening, hardening happened. Right. But in that case, isn't there a legitimate pathos or, you know, yeah, lo passion. love for yeah. Israel that the Messiah is yeah. going forward with the decreed will? Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, that's a good point that Bob brings up. Just because God brings about his decreed will, for example, that there are many that don't believe, that there are many who perish doesn't mean that that's as pleasing to him as it is the vessels of mercy. And we'll look at that when we get to Romans chapter 9. God is very pleased in showing his mercy, but he does show his wrath. So the point is, we have to look at some of these texts like Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and how he longed to gather them as a hen gathers the chicks and ask the question, well, why didn't he then? If he's the omnipotent one, why didn't he? Well, because... There's something he desired to do more in his decreative will. Even though it gives him great pleasure to save, he also is going to be known for his wrath and his power. And that's one of the things that we see when we get to Romans 9. Yes, Norm. Another verse that uh, can be troubling, I don't know exactly where it is, but Jesus is looking out over Jerusalem, and he, he wept, and he, he said something to the effect, I would that you would be saved. So, yeah, that's the same. So, the same. So, yeah, so in one sense, he wanted them, but in another sense, they weren't. That's so. right. That's right. Exactly right. That's the same text, Norm. You're very, very correct. Yeah. Well, one other thing to keep in mind about that whole thing, we know what the other, what else was going on that yeah. made it more important that he be rejected. Yeah. And that was the entire church age. That's right. The one new man. Right. And uh, so the greater good was the salvation of Gentiles. Yes. Because if the kingdom comes only to Israel at that point and the gospel doesn't go out to all the nations and you go, uh, judgment came right at that point, Israel saved and everybody else is damned. Yeah. You don't have the church age. Amen. And Paul comments on that in Romans. That's exactly A partial right. harden, ha hardening happens until That's right. the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So even there... There's a saving purpose in Jesus' desire to gather Israel being delayed at that time. Amen. Well said. Yeah. See, by the way, you know, normally when I talk about the decretive will versus the moral will, people look at you in a dubious manner. Let's just look at some text to prove that. Um, let's begin looking at Acts 2.23. This is a text that we've looked at before. I'm sorry, as we were looking at that, uh, Paul will uh, uh, ask Yes, you there's a, one base I want to cover here and quickly yeah. eliminate, I'm sure. But a Christian unbeliever one time told me that it's not that God didn't desire uh, to save all, but that uh, he was impaired. He couldn't save all. No. That uh, Yeah, I, I, I would eliminate that very quickly right, myself. Right. And that's exactly the point that I'm making here. Exactly right, Paul, that God's decretive will is not thwarted. So when we talk about the difference between the decretive and the moral will, Arminians will say you're making that up. But what I'm going to show you now are some texts where you can't understand them without making that distinction. So what I would do is take these texts to the Arminian and say, you tell me what it means. If, it doesn't, if this text doesn't distinguish between God's decretive and moral will, there's no way to understand it. One is in Acts 2.23. Notice here Peter, remember he's preaching at Pentecost. He's, he's preaching Christ. And remember, the whole point of Pentecost is built off of Joel chapter 2. And remember at the very end of Joel chapter 2, he says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
The point of Peter's sermon is to prove that Jesus is the Lord that you should call upon in Joel 2. And so he preaches Christ. And notice in Acts 2.23, talking of Christ, he says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan in foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now let's stop there. Was it sinful to nail Jesus to the cross? Yes. Was that a violation of God's moral will? Instead of believing on the Son, they crucified the Son. Is that a violation of God's moral will? Yes. Yes. But was it according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God? Yes. 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 There you have it. There's God's decretive will. So how can Arminians say, well, you can't make that distinction between the decretive will and the moral will? Well, that text does. That text certainly does. And if the Bible makes the distinction, then why shouldn't we? All right, let's look again at Acts. Acts 4.27. Remember, this is after the apostles John and Peter, if I recall, were admonished no longer to preach in name, the name of Christ. In fact, I don't have it on my notes. Would somebody mind reading Acts 4.27? through 28. It says here, For in fact in his city both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Amen. And, And see also... Somebody might say, well, they prayed that, but they, they were confused. Yeah. But that's, that's missing Luke's point. That's right. Luke is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's making a point here. And the fact that this is along the same lines as the earlier passage, Luke, the authorial intent is telling us that this is good. Yes. That they prayed this. Right. And so if people uh, know, have told me, decades ago, when I just started teaching the Bible, that, well, people won't pray, people won't preach the gospel. In other words, if we don't think man's in charge in determining everything, then we won't be motivated. We'll just become fatalists and say, like, Islam, the will of Allah. Right. But all the evidence points to the opposite. That's right. Believing God is in charge of his own universe, and that we do have access to his throne, and that he uses means, including the prayers of his own people, actually invigorates and motivates prayer. Amen. And you see that right there. Their belief in the sovereignty of God did not stop them from praying. Yes. And so these objections are based on human philosophy and human sentimentality and not the clear teaching of the Word of God. So we taught the Word of God anyhow, and if people are going to get mad and leave, so be it. They won't have trouble finding anywhere where they believe that man's in charge of the universe. It's everywhere. But the church needs to teach that God's in charge of his own universe. Yeah, amen. Well said. Um, Did anybody listen to Jan Markell on the way here today? Some of you? Did you hear the discussion about how the rapture of the church is likened to a Jewish wedding? And I, there's, by the way, I would agree in a lot of the imagery there. But what's interesting, from she comes from an Arminian perspective and many of the pastors that she has, but the claim was that the bride, remember the cup? The, there's a mohair, the bride price. And the bride price that was paid to purchase the bride in the ancient Near East was very expensive. Well, when Christ pays that price, It's his own life. Well, one of the cups that would be given to the wife after the bride price had been settled was she could reject it or she could affirm it and say, yes, I'll drink of it. Well, they made a lot of hay at that by saying that shows you that the church has all the power in salvation to either be saved or not to be saved. The problem with that is that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches left to their own devices, no bride would ever take the cup. Why? Because dead sinners in Adam don't ever choose the things of God. That's why in Romans 3 it says, none seek after him, no, not one. None none does righteous, no, not one. 
So the point is, we, again, we have to have a, a theology that's based just simply not on analogy, but on exegesis that comes from the scriptures. Let me show you another text that clearly shows a distinction between God's moral will and the decretive will of God. Uh, turn to Revelation 17, verses 16 through 17. This is one I like to use because it's very stark, I think, as well. Revelation 17, verses 16 through 17. Revelation 17, notice verse 16. Now, this is where you have 10 nations that align themselves with the beast and they fight against the harlot and they burn her. Notice it says, the 10 horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Notice verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Now, how many in here would say it is evil to give your allegiance to the beast, to the Antichrist? Everyone should say, yes, that would be a violation of God's moral will. But notice in the text, it fulfills what? It fulfills God's purpose. There you see a distinction. God has decreed purpose that yes, many nations will give their allegiance to the beast and many people. Nonetheless, it violates God's moral will to do so. So again, we're not just making this up. We're looking at the biblical text and saying, yes, God distinguishes in many texts between his moral will and his decretive will. So when we approach this question, what does Peter mean when he says he's not wishing for any to perish? The first option is to simply say, well, God's decretive will was thwarted. I don't think that that's likely. Well, that leads us to number two. It could be that God's moral will is for all to be saved, but that's not his decretive will. Okay, that's an option. But there's a third option that I think is even better, and that is that the any refers to the elect. By the way, some years ago when Bob and I were doing Sunday school, uh, and um, I'm not sorry, I was going to mention um, Adam. Adam was in here, Adam Olean. This is back when we were at the Fick Auditorium. And he gave a, just a brief exegesis of this passage, 2 Peter chapter 3. And he showed that, yes, indeed, the any has to be the elect. And I'm just going to kind of recap some of his findings. So I give credit to Adam on this one. Notice 2 Peter 3. Let's look at the wider context, verses 8 through 9. By the way, one tip for hermeneutics when you're trying to interpret Scripture is first always begin with the immediate context. Okay, so for example, let's say you're going to do a word study. Well, look at how the author uses the word in the immediate context. Then see how he uses it in the same book. And then branch out and see how the author uses that same term in his other writings. Then go to the rest of the New Testament. Then go to the Old Testament Septuagint. So that's how you kind of want to break out like a word study. Um, contextually, we always want to look at the immediate context. So here, 2 Peter 3 through 9, notice again, Peter said, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Now, first of all, notice here in verse 8, the term beloved. Now, let's ask ourselves, who are the beloved? Is that simply every single human being? Or is that a reference to the elect, who end up being believers. Well, it's a reference to believers. In fact, uh, would somebody read, I don't know who has the microphone. Uh, oh, Carly. Rich, would you mind reading 1 Peter 2.11? Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 2.11. I want to prove to you that the beloved, in context with First and Second Peter, is always a reference to believers. 1 Peter 2.11. <laughs> The agapetos. Uh, notice in 1 Peter 2.11, you'll see here clearly that the beloved are believers. 1 Peter 2.11? Yeah. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Wow, amen. Very good. Thank you. So, okay, 
Can we say that unbelievers are aliens and sojourners or strangers to this world? Well, no. So who does that apply to? Believers. So the beloved are believers. And so that applies here as well. In the context, when Peter's writing 2 Peter 3, he's addressing this to the elect. That's why he addresses them as beloved. Well, notice in the very next verse, he says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Now, notice in the box, the you, the antecedent to that is whom? It's beloved. So it's a reference back to the elect. So he's patient towards you, the beloved, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, the antecedent to the any is you, and the you is a reference to whom? The beloved, which is the elect. So do you see then clearly in context, the any is a reference to the elect. God is not slow concerning his promise, but he is not going to miss out on any of his elect. Just as Jesus said in John 6, 39, that all that the Father has given to him, he is going to lose none of them. So every day that we go by, more and more of the elect come in. And one day that bucket is full and the Lord Jesus breaks through the clouds to take his people home. The beginning of the 70th week of Daniel begins. Okay, that's how it works. And so that's why Peter could be confident. No, God isn't slow. He doesn't want any of his elect to perish. That's the point. All right? So in this text, I think the third option was clearly the best, that the ending here isn't a reference to all men, but it's a reference specifically to the elect. Now, there's another text that the Armenians often use, and that's Ezekiel 18.23. Now, this is a diff more difficult nut to crack here. And you'll see why. Notice here, the Lord says through Ezekiel, he says, do I have any pleasure? The term pleasure there, by the way, kapates, um, sometimes very similar to the idea of God's will. But sometimes it's likened to what uh, the, the pleasure like you would have. I, I have greater pleasure in eating chocolate ice cream cones than I do vanilla. Okay, but it's this idea that this is a pleasure. This is something that God desires. He says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn, there's repentance, from his waves and live. Okay, again, now in this text, I think there are three options, just like the last one. Number one, God decrees all to be saved. His pleasure is that no one would perish, but his decretive will is thwarted. And again, what we've said in the context of Scripture is that's not a valid option. Because in Romans 9.19, it says no one can resist the decretive will. Well, you can't resist God's decretive will and then not resist his decretive will at the same time in the same relationship. Are you with me? So if Romans 9.19 is to be taken seriously, that no one can resist his decretive will, you go back to the drawing board and say, that's not an option. God's decretive will isn't being thwarted. So what the second option is that God's moral will is for all to be saved, but that's not his decretive will. So here his moral will would be thwarted. And certainly we see God's moral will is thwarted all the time. Doesn't Jesus begin his ministry by commanding all people to repent and believe the gospel? Yes. Now, does that mean everybody believes? No. His moral will is being thwarted. Yeah, Bob. Well, I happen to have Luther already here on this one. This was debated. This was a Reformation issue, dear saints. And that was the one, that passage in Ezekiel was a yeah. one diatribe was using to attack the gospel. Yeah. Okay. And promote free will as the key agent of all things good. Right. And Luther addressed that, and he has several pages here, but let me just get down to how he concludes his discussion of this. Uh, he says this, Wherefore you see that not only all the words of law stand against free will, but also that all the words of promise utterly confuted, that is, that the whole scripture is made directly against it. In other words, he distinguished between law and promise all the time, yeah, or law and gospel. Yeah. Here's what he said. Quote, hence you see this word, quote, I desire not the death of a sinner, unquote, 
says Luther, does nothing else but preach and offer divine mercy to the world, which none receive with joy and gratitude, but those who are distressed and exercised with the fears of death, for they are they in whom the law has now done its office that is bringing them to the knowledge of sin. Huh. So when the elect hear this, they shake and tremble at the law they'd spurned. Yes. And they see that God's a merciful God and they've been offending him yeah. and abusing his kindness. And the law convicts them and drives them to the promise Amen. of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. That was the bedrock foundation of the Reformation. Amen. Okay. And so Luther goes back to that again and again, and also claimed, I found in here, I was reading this some more, yeah. he continually said, the Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. Yeah, that's right. And so many times when it says that God doesn't desire the death of anyone who dies, therefore repent and live. Why yeah. die? Why? Yeah. We preach that with the full Amen. authority of Scripture, with the same compassion and desire for people to repent and know Christ that any Armenian would ever do. And I find solace in God's power to save anyone. Yeah. Because you never know who's going to be the next Saul of Tarsus. Yes. The next person who's, as far as we can tell, is a horrible enemy whom I repent. Amen. But, but so Luther didn't see that we had to th throw away God's saving power, that he works according to his good pleasure through the means he has ordained, which is the gospel. Right. Because there's passages where it reveals God's heart for the salvation of sinners. Amen. And the critics, like Dave, uh, Greg Boyd, who I... I, this came up when I debated him. Yeah. They mock God without, they don't even care. Right. They mock God. They say, well, then God's powerless. Why doesn't, if that's, the God you preach is not a good and loving God, because if he could save everybody, he would. He doesn't, therefore, uh, something else is going on, and it's, God doesn't know the future, according to Greg Boyd. Right. Um, but, so we read verse after verse in the debate, and finally, uh, it came up. And one of the verses came up, and the, the moderator said, well, Greg, what do you think of that verse? He goes, I don't like it. <laughs> wow. I had another guy say, well, I don't know what it means, but it can't mean that. Yeah. Here's what they're saying. Nothing can mean anything that doesn't fit with my preordained theology. Yeah. I don't care what the Bible says. It can't fit because I don't like it. That's right. But man's desires and emotions and what we like and how we think God should run his universe doesn't prove that's how he runs his universe. That's right. Scripture tells us how he runs his universe. And I, I, I don't, I'm not Lutheran, and there's things that I disagree with Luther about, but when it came to this, he got it right. He was spot on. And that's he was right. so bold and so powerful and I, I just love reading this book, The Bondage of the Will. It's an amazing book. Yeah, amen. That's right. Oh, I'm sorry. Eric. Oh, I'm sorry, Rich. Yeah, there, there's a lot of prominent Christians that don't understand God's ability, God's sovereignty. Sure. I took Carly and Shelby to the Creation Museum a couple of years ago, and there was a placard, and I, I couldn't believe it, but it's true. It's sitting in there, and it says that it wasn't God's will for the fall. Hmm. And so wow. God had to go to plan B Wow! when the fall occurred. Ken Ham, oh. God had to go to plan B because yeah. it wasn't his will for the fall. Wow. It's like, wait a minute, so God's not sovereign then, right? That's right. You would have to conclude that. You know, Rich, a great passage that refutes that, and we'll turn to it hopefully maybe even today, uh, Romans chapter 9. Because Romans chapter 9, a very careful reading of that shows that God does desire even to pour his wrath out on the vessels of wrath. Well, if that was God's foreordained plan, well, then that would insinuate that the fall was necessary. So, dear brothers and sisters, think about before the fall. I want you to think about for just a moment, would God always be just? Oh, yeah. He'd always be just, even if Adam and Eve had never sinned. But would God, apart from the fall, ever be able to demonstrate his mercy and his grace? Well, see, the fall allows him to show 
more of his glory. And so what we see in the text of Scripture, both in Romans 9 and the book of Revelation in particular, is that God's glory is what's more important, that he's going to be glorified in his decretive will, that what, what he brings about is designed for that specific purpose. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, I was just going to add one other thing, and this is a principle. You were talking about certain principles, you know, as you look at Scripture. Yeah. And one of them that comes to my mind is that Scripture proves Scripture. Amen. In other words, if you, if you find something that looks inconsistent, it means that you are not understanding something. And so God wants us to use our minds. That's you know, right. we, we always kind of go to one extreme or the other. God wants yeah. us to use our minds. He wants us to wrestle with these things. But he also wants us to recognize that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. That's so right. that's hard for everyone to get that balance. Eric, but you're exactly right. Scripture proves scripture. And so yep. that's where we got to use that concept all the time. Eric, well said. What you're saying is, look, there's no contradiction in scripture. So let me explain why that's hard in our postmodern era. The postmodern age has rejected Aristilian logic. Okay, now you might say, well, why do we have to have Aristilian logic? Because God created it. So, for example, let me make a bold statement, and you'll think, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. But when you think about it, it is. You cannot get rid of the law of non-contradiction. Okay, why? Because God created the law of non-contradiction. Okay, the law of non-contradiction says if A, then not non-A, at the same time in the same relationship. Okay, now, if someone said, well, I don't like the law of non-contradiction as they do in our postmodern world, I just want to get rid of it. And let's just say they claim, well, I don't believe that the law of non-contradiction exists. Well, if you're debating them, you simply say, oh, I see, you believe that it does exist. Well, now they're in a quandary because they have to use the law of non-contradiction to say, well, no, I'm saying that it doesn't exist because even the law of non-contradiction can't exist and not exist at the same time in the same relationship. Norman Geisler, how many in here have ever heard of him? Famous Christian apologist. He said, you cannot get rid of the law of non-contradiction because you have to use it to get rid of it. And any time you have to use the very thing you deny exists, you don't have a very good case, do you? That's what Norman Geisler said. Exactly right. If you're trying to deny shovels exist while you're using a shovel, you don't have a very good case. So the point being, you're exactly right, Eric. If Romans 9.19 says that no one can thwart his decretive will, then why are the Aminians saying, well, these texts are understood as God's decretive will being thwarted? Er, you've made, it's the violation of the law of non-contradiction. That means you go back to the drawing board. So that's why I'm putting these alternatives up on the board to say, let's think about these texts. Yeah, Scott. I just wanted to go back to your point about the enriched point that the fall was God's will. It yeah. had to be because if not, then Adam couldn't be our federal head in, in our sin. In our, well said. In, in Romans 5, you also have Christ, our other representative. Yes, God works via federal headship representatives. And you're absolutely right. And if we say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that Adam sins, I become the sinner. Well, then it would also not be fair that Christ's righteousness would be credited to my account. So, yeah, absolutely. That was all foreordained by God. Very good point, Scott. All right, now, let me put up the third option here in this text. And again, it's just like the other one. The he here refers to the elect. Now, does everyone see that when he says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Right? You know, it says, declares the Lord God, rather that he should turn from his ways and live. Remember in 2 Peter 3, 9, I said that the any was a reference to the elect. Well, that's an option. Maybe the he is a reference to the elect, but that's doubtful because of what? The term wicked there. Okay, so the he is probably a reference to the wicked. So here's the best reading, I think, of this text, it's number two. Yes, in one sense, God's moral will is that none would perish. He commands everyone to repent, and if everyone would repent, Jesus promised all those who come unto me, I will by no wise cast out, John 6, 37. All right? So, yes, he wills for all to come, but his decretive will certainly 
is that not everyone comes? So I think that that's the best answer to Ezekiel 18.23. If you take the first option, you have a contradiction in Scripture. If you take the last option, then you're denying the immediate context. So I think certainly the middle option is the best option in interpreting Ezekiel 18.23. Okay, now, these are the most prolific proof texts that Arminians use to either prove conditional election, as they like to call it, or unlimited atonement, as they call it. They'll use it for both. But you've just seen that there are far better readings to those texts than the, than the Arminians have to offer. Okay? Any questions or comments on that before I move on to our next point here in our TULIP acronym? Uh, let me move on then. Let's go. Remember, we've already looked at total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement is the L that we just looked at. Now we're going to be looking at irresistible grace. What is irresistible grace? Irresistible grace is whereby God decrees to save through pouring his effectual grace upon his elect, and it cannot be resisted. He overcomes the dead sinner. Now, when the dead sinner believes, they really believe. They want to believe. But that was given to them by the Father. It was given to them by God. So irresistible grace is saying that no sinner at the end of the day can ever thwart God's decretive will. If he has decreed that you are the elect, he will bring you to faith. And you really will believe. You will really love the gospel. You're not going to be brought in kicking and screaming. He changes your heart so that you really believe. But that grace is indeed irresistible. Now, let me get into the Romans 9 text. I want to delve into this text. This is one of the most significant texts to me in all the Bible. Uh, the reason why is here the Apostle Paul, I think of the whole world or what God has revealed as a tent. I don't know why. But here in Romans 9, part of the tent pole is above the tent. You kind of see that God has a decree, as we've been talking about, an even damning his vessels of wrath. That there really is a purpose behind that. So remember in the context of Romans 9, Paul had talked about Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He proved the point that yes, God really chose Jacob and Esau before anything they had done in the womb. And then he cites from the Old Testament that Moses, remember he says that the Lord will have compassion upon whom he has compassion, mercy upon whom he has mercy. Well then, Paul expects there's going to be an objection. And the objection is here in verse 19, where man says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And again, there's God's decree of will. The idea is that if he makes you a vessel for destruction, you can't do anything about it. And if he makes you a vessel for salvation, that's his will. And so why does he still find fault? Well, verse 20, he continues. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the powder have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Okay, now, I want you to notice this phrase down here. Paul is declaring in verse 21 that God, who is the potter, has the right to make one vessel for honorable use, which is for salvation, and another for common use, which in context is for destruction. Does everyone see that? He's declaring that God has the right to do that. Why? Well, because he's God. It's his sandbox. He gets to do what he wants with it. He owns it all. That's his answer. Now, let's keep going, and let's just make sure that our understanding of Paul is correct. Romans 9, 22 through 24. By the way, I like the New King James version here. The reason why is in the Greek, there's a chi, there's an and in the text. And here, the New King James version rightly translates it. So many versions don't translate the chi, and therefore you're left with the idea that God only has one purpose. But no, he has two purposes. Okay, so let's read this. Notice it says, what if God wanting to show his wrath? Now stop there for just a moment. Notice the term wanting. That's the will of God. That's fellow. That's his will. This is the will of God. What if God's will was to show his wrath? 
So God is desiring to show his wrath. That's exactly the point with the fall. No fall, no wrath. So God's desire was to show his wrath and to make his power known. Notice it says, endured with much long suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, notice in the underlying portion of this text, talking about the vessels of wrath, let's, let's link ourselves back. That's the same thing as the vessel for common use. Does everyone see that? Does everyone see the, the, the connection there? That's a vessel of wrath. And notice it says, prepared for destruction. A big debate is on this participle. Notice the participle prepared. The term prepared there, the participle is katartismena. And the big debate on that participle is it has a passive, act, excuse me, a middle passive ending. Okay, now let's talk about the difference. A middle ending, if we understand that as a middle participle, the idea would be that the vessels prepared themselves for destruction. And guess who likes that idea? Arminians. Arminians love that. They say, yes, it must be a middle ending. The vessels are preparing themselves for destruction. But much more likely, it's a passive under a passive participle. Why? Because God is the agent who is doing it. And by the way, katartismena in the New Testament is never used with a middle sense. It's always used in a passive sense. So this is passive. So if it's passive, that means the vessels are being prepared. There's an outside agent that is preparing them for destruction. Who is the implied outside agent? God. Now, how do we know that? Well, because before, God made, God was the potter. He made one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. Does everyone see that? So the implied agent then is God. He's prepared the vessels for destruction. But notice there's a second purpose that God has. Verse 23, and this connects, notice the and. This connects back to God wanting. What if he wanted to do this too? Doesn't he have the right? Yeah. So God wanted to do something, namely show his power in the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And second purpose, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. So it's not that God just had one purpose in creating the universe. That's, by the way, some of what your English versions will point out. I was really disappointed with some of, I think it was my NASB or maybe it was my ESV or whatever it was. They didn't have the chi here. And you get, you're left with the idea that God just wanted to make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy. No, there's two purposes. He wanted to show his wrath and he wanted to show his glory on the vessels of mercy. Now notice here, it says, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Now here you have an active verb. Here, God is active in the sense that he's preparing his vessels for salvation. And so do you remember what I said when we talk about those who are damned versus those who are elect? The damned, all God has to do to harden them is to let them be themselves. He doesn't have to do anything. Why? Because they're born dead sinners in Adam. But for the vessels of mercy, God has to go hands-on, give them the Holy Spirit so that he can regenerate them. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except but by the Spirit. That's how he prepared them for glory. Yes, Brian. In uh, Romans 2, 4, says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and yeah. patience, uh, not knowing that the kindness of God leads to repentance? Wow. So that, that's a... Uh, a parallel it is, uh, uh, to that. And then also, uh, 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 Job. This is a similar uh, thing that uh, Job had a problem with God, where uh, God says, where were you when I laid down the foundations of the earth? Do you have a problem? Do you know better than I what right. I'm doing? That's right. So I think the, the, the bottom line is, uh, whether it's past or uh, uh, future 
uh, uh, things that are come to pass, uh, God uh, knows what he's doing. That's right. That's right. Amen. Well said. Yeah, he's God. And that's the answer that Paul gives. God has a decree of will. Again, the wanting is his will. And he's just simply, what if God wants to do what? He wants to do two things. He wants to show his wrath and notice, make his power known. Make his power known on whom? Well, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. What if God wanted to do that? Is someone going to say, well, you can't do that? Uh, that, that's his, you know, we can say, well, I don't like that answer, but that's Paul's answer. The apostle Paul is a spokesman for Christ. But that's not the only thing he wants to show and that he might make known the riches of his glory and the vessels of mercy. He has two purposes. And so this is why he decreed the fall. If God never ordained the fall, he doesn't get to show his mercy. He doesn't get to show his wrath. Yes, Norm. Yeah, here's the... Uh Here's a verse that shows where the Lord wanted to do something, but it was resistible. Sure. It's uh, Matthew 23, 37, where he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hand gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Yes. So they, that was not irresistible grace in that sense. Exactly right. So there we'd have to assume that the wanting was his what? His, what kind of will would it be? It would it be his moral will. So he revealed that he wanted them to come to him. He preached repentance. He opens his ministry. Uh, do you remember in Isaiah, in Isaiah 9, um, Nephtali and Zebulun, they were the first to receive Assyrian judgment. They would be the first to see messianic salvation. And that's one of the great points that you see in the opening chapters of Matthew, that here Israel has this privileged position. They were the ones who were given the covenants, the promises. They were the, the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they should have known who the Messiah was. He fulfilled all the prophecies. Remember when Herod's trying to find out where the Christ is born, they knew. Micah 5, 2, he'd be born in Bethlehem. You know, he fulfills all these Old Testament scriptures. He does miraculous deeds fulfilling Isaiah 35, 5. But the Pharisees loved their positions of power more than the truth. And so many people love their deeds of darkness, as Jesus pointed out. So here he commands them to repent and to believe in Mark 1.15, but they won't do it. But as Bob said, it was to fulfill his decretive will that he would have one new man, that there was an elect, not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles as well. And that that partial hardening would last until the fullness of the Gentiles would come in. So absolutely right. I think when we look at that text and we juxtapose it next to this one, Norm, where Paul asks, for who can resist his will? We have to assume that Jesus couldn't be referring to his decretive will. He'd be referring to his moral will. Yeah, absolutely. So, dear ones, when, the reason I wanted to unpack more of Romans 9 there is notice then when the question is for who resists his will, you can see in the context, Paul is talking about his decree of will, that he's decreed the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, the vessels for common use, and he's also prepared the vessels of mercy, the vessels for honorable use. So when someone says, well, God... His will can be thwarted. The Arminians claim that limited atonement or irresistible grace can't be true because God's will is being thwarted all the time. Our rebuttal has to be this, to say, well, no. God's decretive will can never be thwarted. God is an omnipotent God, and when he sets out to save his elect, he doesn't fail. Ultimately, when his grace is poured out upon those who don't believe, initially because they're dead sinners in Adam, it will not be resisted if they're his people. He will bring them to saving faith. And by the way, when I say he brings us to saving faith, that doesn't mean I become a person who comes into the kingdom grudgingly. When you're regenerated, you see the sweetness of the gospel. You see the truth of it, and it becomes for you. And remember, the reformers were very good at breaking down what saving faith was. They said there were three elements to it. There was the idea of a census, or first of all, it was notitia, knowledge. You had to have knowledge of the facts. 
The knowledge of the facts that we need to know about the gospel is who is Jesus? What did he do? Why do we need him? And how do we receive him? We have to have that knowledge. But just because you have that knowledge doesn't mean you're saved. There's a second part of saving faith. That's a census. A census says, yes, I know the facts. But a census says, I believe they're true. I believe Jesus Christ really was crucified for my sins. I really believe that he was raised from the dead. I really do believe the promises of God. But we're still not saved because, you know what, even the demons believe. And they shudder. They say, yeah, we know those things are true, but they want nothing to do with them. And that's where fiducia comes in, the term trust. We say, not only do I have the facts, not only do, do I believe the facts are true, but it's for me. I'm turning to that. That's for me. For the rest of my life, all the way to eternity, I'm trusting upon the stone that was laid in Zion. Because those who do so will never be disappointed. That's saving faith. And by the Spirit, His irresistible grace, He brings us to all three aspects of saving faith. Knowledge of the truth, knowing the truth is true, and saying the truth is for me. That's what He does for His elect. Okay, now with that, any questions or comments before? Yeah, Rich. Yeah, okay, you brushed on it, and it, 2 Thessalonians talks about it. Yeah. They did not receive a love of the truth so that they might be saved. And for yeah. this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Now, is it a love for the truth to believe that I am saved as an act of my own will? Um, yeah, I would say that is, <laughs> that's not what's revealed, is it? That's not revealed in Scripture. So at the end of the day, Rich, we have to be those who are going to acquiesce to the, what the Scriptures teach or we're going to hold on to things that we don't like. How can you be yeah. saved by thinking that I'm saved by an act of my own will? It's my decision. Billy Graham even has a magazine. Yeah, Decision Magazine. I know it's very troubling. It is. It's very troubling. It's an attack to me on some of the solas of the Reformation, particularly the glory of God alone, grace alone. I think a distortion of the solas is very troubling. Uh, think about in John chapter 6. Remember John, Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Well, he reiterates that again at the end of the chapter. He says, this is why I said to you that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Well, then, a wide group of the disciples, outside of the 12, they left him. And that's where Jesus looks at the other 12, and he asks them the question, are you going to leave me? Remember what Peter said? Where else do we have to go, Lord, for you're the one with the words of eternal life? Peter knew that he had the words of truth. He had a love for the truth. But the rest of them were so offended by the doctrine of grace that they left. They would not tolerate the idea that salvation is only of God. So right. grace alone offended them so much that they went away. Yeah, and that deal. term draws is actually the original term is drags against his own will, isn't it? Yeah, it's a strong term. In other words, it's not just a wooing, alkuo in the Greek. It has to do with um, you draw like they use the drawing of your sword. Uh, so the Armenians always claim alkuo is just a wooing. God woos all people. The problem with that is you don't woo your sword out of your scabbard. When the uh, disciples are dragged alkuo before the Sanhedrin and roughed up, etc., they weren't being wooed. <laughs> are you with me? So yeah, elkuo, the term for drawing, is something where God, by compulsion, through his irresistible grace, brings dead sinners from death to life, from hating the gospel to loving the gospel. So we, we do come to Christ kicking and screaming. You know, right, so he in, changes in our will. That's what the whole book that Bob was citing, the bondage of the will. So in our, dead, in our nature as dead sinners in Adam, our will is such that we're in bondage or we hate the things of the gospel. But as soon as regeneration takes place, we go from darkness to light. And that which we used to hate, we love. That which we used to reject, we say, that's for me. That's conversion. Yeah. Yeah, God uses means. Yeah, amen. So at that second that we actually come, we're not unwilling, we're willing. Yeah, amen. For the first time. For the first time ever. Yeah. That's the, uh, being regenerated is the first breath of a newborn babe in Christ. Yeah. It's that first breath. 
right up till just this, the narrative of Saul of Tarsus in Acts explains it as well as anything you're ever going to read. Who art thou? Who are you? I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. Amen. What do you want me to do? And um, God uses means. And I, I think it seems Americans like to be masters of our own destiny. Mm. And people are offended if, if not. And the other problem is people are uh, basing a lot of things based on emotion over things they don't know. Every one of us has unsaved loved ones. Yeah. Uh, people that we work with and people that are important to us who aren't serving Christ. And so we might be in our mind thinking, well, see, God has already prepared that person as a vessel of destruction, and they're just going to go to hell, and they, and they have no chance. <coughs> Nobody's saved by chance. But we don't know that. Yeah. There's not one person who knew Saul of Tarsus in Acts that would have thought he'd be a good Christian. There's not one person who had ever saw what was going on and thought when they stoned Stephen, well, this guy who hates Christians, he's going to be an apostle. Right. We don't know the future. We don't know these things. We can't build theology on what we do not know and cannot know. We can only build it on what's revealed in Scripture. We can't take that in general categories, vessels of destruction, and say, well, that's got to be my Aunt Martha. Yeah. Why do you know that? Right. We don't know that. Yeah. In God's mercy, we don't have them a, a written copy of the Lamb's Book of Life. We have to go preach the gospel to everybody. Yeah. And we need yeah. to pray. Pray for Aunt Martha. Right. If you have one. You don't know what God's going to do. Amen. Well, fit, well fitting there to end on that note. Thank you, Bob. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, for your word that it is clear that you do ordain salvation. You do bring it about, that your grace is powerful, that you're omnipotent, that your ways cannot be thwarted. We do thank you, Lord, for the universal call that all are invited to your table. And we do pray, Lord, that if there are any listening here um, over the Internet, that they would believe, that they would repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.